This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. How can U.S. federal agencies strengthen their payment integrity efforts? What can the U.S. Department of the Treasury's Office of Accounting Policy and Financial Transparency do to help with these efforts? And how can we pivot from compliance to prevention-focused strategies that promote the use of data and analytics and collaboration across government and other stakeholders in advancing payment integrity. I'll explore these questions and so much more with my very special guest, Renata Miskolt, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Accounting Policy and Financial Transparency at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. Renata, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, I'm honored to be here. So let's start off. I like to give my guests a chance to explain the mission of the portfolio or office they lead. So could you tell us about the mission of Treasury's Office of Accounting Policy and Financial Transparency? How does it fit in within the overall structure of the department? Yes. So my office is within the Undersecretary for Domestic Finance, and I'm within the Fiscal Assistant Secretary's Office. Uh, So we contribute to the fiscal service mission, which is promoting financial integrity and operational efficiency of the federal government. So, And what are your duties and responsibilities as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Accounting Policy and Fiscal Transparency at Treasury? Sure. So when it comes to managing the federal government's finances, my team's really at the nexus of accountability, transparency, and innovation. Uh, We spend most of our time developing federal accounting and financial reporting standards and policy, working to drive innovation and change across the federal financial management landscape, and promoting integrity and transparency into the dollars that the government spends each year. So um, what that looks like for me specifically is I'm championing um, efforts that are ongoing um, from a policy perspective and also from an operational perspective at the fiscal service. I'm supporting the development of accounting policy and standards, um, and I'm working to make data available. So my counterpart um, is really responsible for fiscal operations, and the way that I see my portfolio is I'm responsible for the fiscal data. You know, what's going in? How do we account for it? How do we make sure that it's standardized? And how do we make sure it's accessible and transparent as appropriate for decision-making and for the American public? That's great. So with those duties and the portfolio, which you articulated, what are some of the top management challenges you face in your position? And how have you sought to address some of those challenges? Sure. So starting with data, you know, how do we make this really complex and, you know, sometimes wonky data accessible and consumable for decision makers? Um, I love this saying, uh, my old boss used to say it, data plus use equals value. So how do we make that accounting, financial management data available and accessible for decision makers? 
Um, another challenge is how do we promote innovation and modernization in a very um, structured back office function? This function is typically resource constrained in federal agencies um, and, you know, is sort of guided by many policies and procedures and requirements. So how do we kind of create the space for innovation? And then alongside that, how do we show people the art of the possible? So there's a whole lot of modernization and new technology and techniques available out there. How do we introduce that into this space so that we can have a more efficient and effective financial management function? That's great. So with, with those challenges and your portfolio, what has surprised you most since taking on this role within Treasury? Yeah. So my previous role, I was the chief data and analytics officer at um, the HHS Office of the Inspector General. And so coming out of an oversight function into Treasury, um, I knew one of the roles I would take on is working on payment integrity. And one of the first meetings I had with a broad group of stakeholders, including GAO, OMB, and OPM, um, was around payment integrity. And while I knew that we were all aligned towards the goal of payment integrity, I was really surprised at how aligned we were in terms of the how. Uh, you know, this is a, a complex group of stakeholders, right? Got oversight and OMB. And, and, um, and so we all kind of aligned on really what needs to be done. And um, you know, the hard part is just getting there. Absolutely. I'd like to talk about leadership when I talk to my guests. And, and when you think of your previous role uh, within an oversight capacity and your current role, how do you lead? Perhaps you could share with us any leadership principles that you that have inspired you or you follow. Yeah, so I've done a lot of thinking about this. And for me, um, it boils down to my core values, which are integrity, innovation, and collaboration. From an integrity perspective, um, you know, I believe that one of the b- best ways that you can understand how government works for you is understanding, you know, how the money is allocated, right? So I want to make sure that I support um, an, in a, uh, a federal financial management function that has integrity, that it's transparent, and that it's following standards. And then kind of in my personal life, I'd say um, being authentic. Uh, so... Uh, I often tell my team, you know, being that full human. So I have three young kids and, um, you know, this this requires me uh, juggling many balls in the air and, um, you know, requires me to show some vulnerability. So really just trying to be a full person. I think that that everyone, especially post pandemic, you know, you kind of see the blending of work and personal more than uh, before. And um, I think that's a good thing. You can really sort of understand the full person, understand what they have going on, and also the unique um, kind of perspective that they can bring to the work. When it comes to innovation, so I am an immigrant. Um, My father actually was a mayor of our small town in Poland, and we were very resourceful and scrappy, both in Poland and then here. And so my view on innovation is really how can you sort of be resourceful and tenacious and kind of keep things moving forward and kind of taking old ideas and recycling them or kind of taking a different approach towards them so that it can um, come to fruition. 
And then as it relates to collaboration, um, I feel like these really challenging problems that we have at the federal space can't be solved on your own. And I think through collaboration, you know, working across silos and really understanding perspectives from across the board really help to um, deliver better for the American public. Wonderful. So I'd like to, you know, transition now to your sort of strategic vision for your portfolio, your office, and perhaps maybe you could identify your your priorities or focus area that kind of frame that vision. Sure. So strategic vision very much aligns with the 10-year vision for federal financial management. So that vision is that Americans expect their government to be an efficient steward of its federal of its finances, that it provides financial information that is accurate, and that it offers financial interactions that are modern, seamless, inclusive, and secure. So my role, I think specifically, is really achieving this vision through the availability and use of federal financial data. Um, one of the key strategic priorities that I knew I would be leading when I joined this office is to advance Treasury's role in supporting federal programs in payment integrity. We want to position Treasury as a leader and as a trusted partner for not just federal agencies, but states that administer federal programs. And, you know, we're doing that from a policy perspective, kind of thinking around, you know, how do we take perhaps, you know, disparate places where we do this in some ways and kind of bring it together so we're um, stronger on the whole, thinking about legislative strategy and how we create more explicit authority for Treasury. So one example uh, we have is um, in this recent president's budget, really pushing for Treasury's authority to acquire bank account verification um, for all federal programs. Um, And then we have a number of other proposals. Uh, so, Renata, as a follow-up, are there any specific internal drivers and or external trends that shape and inform your strategy? Yeah. Um, so I'll highlight the drivers for payment integrity, but I'd say that they could be expanded beyond, you know, um, kind of apply more more to the whole portfolio. So I'd say the key drivers are volume. So with the pandemic, I think it's close to $5 trillion in spend that we had for response and recovery. So this is a historic degree of um, spending. And with that came a historic degree of fraud and identity theft. And what we're seeing also is advanced tactics. So the kind of bad actors are getting more sophisticated. Unfortunately, the money that went towards those fraudsters created a well-funded industry where they're, you know, applying artificial intelligence and advanced analytics to be better at attacking us. And then I'd say, you know, COVID-19 shifted uh, people's expectations as they relate to, you know, how they interact with organizations and the government. So, you know, shifting more from in-person to digital interactions. And that in itself, um, while it's a good thing, can create additional vulnerabilities if not managed carefully. So I'd say that those are the broad um, trends, you know, and I think, you know, just overall, the um, opportunity to use data and really kind of connect the dots from across the government is a, is a big trend that we're seeing. Mm. You know, you mentioned a couple of times uh, the term payment integrity. I was hoping you could tell us 
and the audience, what what is meant by this term? And perhaps you could define for us the concept of improper payments as a juxtaposition and how these two terms intersect. Okay. Well, the kind of easy answer is, you know, payment integrity means paying the right person in the right amount at the right time. And you're right, there are there are nuances to this. So um, improper payments, it's defined by the most recent legislation called the Payment Integrity Information Act, or PIA, of 2019. And it defines improper payments as payments that should not have been made. So they could be overpayments or underpayments or errors, but they could also be fraud, right? So improper payments aren't necessarily fraud and they don't necessarily mean a loss of money to the government. And fraud is when something, an entity uh, gets something of value um, through willful misrepresentation. Um, So while all payments resulting from fraudulent activity are considered improper, um, not all improper payments are the result of fraud. How can a rigorous focus on payment integrity strengthen trust in government? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report, Financial Management for the Future, at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report, Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner, breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Renata Miskel, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Accounting Policy and Financial Transparency at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. I was wondering how, and I'm using the term rigorous on purpose because I think there needs to be a real focus on this, especially as you point out, with the amount of disbursements that went out in response to the pandemic. How can a rigorous focus on payment integrity strengthen trust in government? Yeah, so, you know, just to make it really personal, um, for Americans, it's it's one of the most direct ways that we interact with the government. Uh, so when you get money into your account um, or you receive that check, and hopefully it's money directly into your account, not a check, <laughs> but um, it's one of the most direct ways that you interact with the, with the with the government. And payments are really one of the, especially at the federal level, are one of the primary ways that the federal government uses to provide a safety net to vulnerable populations, um, to promote economic prosperity, and to ensure national security. So when we have fraud and improper payments, that you know degrades trust 
it also creates a cost, right? It's not just a cost to government, but it's also a cost in the recipient or the individual. You know, you'll have to make an extra call or you'll have to kind of wait through a backlog or you might have to reconcile some and provide some additional documentation. So that provides a bad experience. Um, not to mention, I think the worst customer experience would be getting your identity stolen. So it's really important that we focus on payment integrity to really strengthen trust in government. Um, and the, the, I'd say the last thing is, um, especially when it comes to an emergency, you know, when you're at your most vulnerable state, you want to get the money fast, right? And and get it and get the support you need. And you want to do it um, in a way that's not compromising your privacy or security, but at the same time, the government wants to do it in a way that does not compromise its ability to protect the program. And that's important, I think. And, you know, one of the things uh, I wanted to talk to you about is there's been a lot of effort to kind of advance payment integrity across the federal government. And despite some of the positive advancement, as federal government spending has increased over the past decade, so has obviously improper payments for whatever reason. Uh, can you lay out for us sort of the current state from your perspective of improper payments and give us a lay of the land, so to speak? Sure. So the Government Accountability Office, or GAO, has been tracking this since 2003. And since that time, it's estimated that the cumulative improper payments are totaled of $2.4 trillion. So what that translates to is a payment accuracy rate of about 95%. And this ebbs and flows a bit year to year, but it's about 95%. In fiscal year 2022, um, there were 18 agencies that reported an estimate of $247 billion in improper payments across 82 programs. So the kind of highlight I want to share with you is that 78% of that total, $247 billion, was reported by five programs. Um, and these are programs that you are likely familiar with. Um, so it's Medicaid, Medicare, unemployment insurance, and the earned income tax credit. And the fifth one is the Paycheck Protection Program, which is a, a new COVID program. So these are big programs, and those are the programs that contribute to um, the greatest share of improper payments. And the other kind of unique thing about those programs is that they're federally funded state-administered programs. So they require deep partnerships between federal agencies and states to kind of correct um, any issues. On a positive note, federal agencies saw improper payments decline in FY 2022, and that decline is a step in the right direction. It reflects a lot of effort, um, collaboration, and focus by agencies, um, but there's still a lot more work to be done. Renata, the Treasury issued three waves of direct relief payments or economic impact payments, EIPs, during the COVID pandemic. And, they, and they, the amount of money that went out dwarfed the size of anything similar in historic events in terms of like the financial crisis of 2008 and were delivered in record speed. But it also identified some vulnerabilities in federal and state government payment systems. Can you tell us more about those vulnerabilities and perhaps you could illustrate them? So as you mentioned, that unprecedented amount of spending um, that happened in record time 
did exacerbate existing vulnerabilities. Now, I don't want to call out any specific agency, so I'll speak to them broadly. But the vulnerabilities included eligibility determination, so the process in which we verify that the individual or organization is who they say they are. Um, there's a lot of room for improvement there, and this is a long-standing challenge. Um, we also saw vulnerabilities as they relate to duplicate payments, so an entity or an individual applying for uh, and receiving benefits or, or dollars that should only be you know, administered under one program, but they're receiving two or maybe under multiple states. And then the issue around self-certification. So we know that this is not a great way to uh, ensure payment integrity. And um, that was proven again during the pandemic. So I'd say, you know, those are the kind of key areas. Um, one additional one is, you know, there's been pretty significant underinvestment generally in government infrastructure and systems. And so, you know, when you think about modernizing your systems to promote payment integrity by, you know, leveraging data, um, automating different controls, um, those underinvestments in systems really kind of inhibit your ability to make change quickly. So no one can predict when the next large scale emergency or disaster will occur, where monies need to go out quickly and huge amounts dis dispersed. But um, you know, as you pointed out, fraudsters will look for ways to exploit weaknesses in government assistance programs. Why is it so important uh, for the federal government to do more to manage risk and shift the focus to the back end where recovery to more of the front end where, where we can do more prevention and what would need to be done to go from recovery to a prevention approach? Yeah, I, I love this question. So, you know, coming from HHS OIG, at, you know, towards the tail end of the pandemic, I saw it firsthand how difficult it is to um, kind of implement the pay and chase model, if you will. So, you know, you pay it um, and then worry about the kind of uh, payment integrity afterwards. Um, it's really hard to recoup dollars. It's really hard to dedicate the resources to kind of prosecute and, and bring people to justice. And inevitably, there are some that just get away. Um, so the best thing to do is to uh, focus on prevention. And one of the best ways to focus on prevention is to do it before a disaster strikes. Um, so at Treasury, we believe that we're very well positioned to equip federal programs with turnkey solutions and data that they can leverage when they um, are faced with an influx in funding or a new program. So, you know, when there's an emergency, they can turn to us and, and look at those proven solutions and the data that um, they can leverage to build in those controls up front without sacrificing the speed of getting money out the door. Our vision, and I imagine a world where, you know, we can prevent fraud and improper payments in real time. This would require really a transformation throughout the payment lifecycle, um, kind of a shift from siloed to a more kind of seamless digital environment. And we would also have a shift in mindset where payment integrity wouldn't be seen as a hindrance to getting money at the door. It would actually be seen as a way to 
get the money out the door faster because it would, you know, kind of integrate data and automation. So anyway, I think right now is the perfect time to focus on this. You know, at the kind of tail end of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, we all have those lessons learned and battles cars, you know, um, top of mind. And it's the time where we can um, build partnerships, you know, establish those data sharing agreements, um, kind of build our capacities so that we are ready for the next time. Yeah, and that goes into my next question. You kind of alluded to it a little bit. And I'm, I'm wondering, is there any advice or any anything you see in terms of practices, best practices or workable practices where agencies can more effectively balance that urgency after an event um, to get money out the door, quote unquote, in an emergency while also, you know, preventing improper payments and fraud. And underlying this question is how do we have like misaligned incentives and the complex system which we operate in? How do they limit accountability in this regard? Yeah. So I'll go back to like just highlighting again that unique role and that position that Treasury plays. And, and that's where I think we can lean in this time around. So Treasury, as a chief dispersing organization, we make over 90% of federal payments. Um, That translates to about 1.4 billion payments in fiscal year 2023. So we're we're essentially the largest paying organization in, in the universe, right? And while agencies and federally funded programs have context, um, we have this unique perspective where we can see the payment activity across all of these different programs and recipients. And we also touch the full spectrum of the payment life cycle. So from pre-award, pre-payment, to payment and post-payment. And throughout that life cycle, we can um, kind of integrate our solutions so that we can support federal agencies and programs. So we can implement solutions such as um, the account verification service, which we applied during the pandemic. And we saw incredible results from that. So we partnered with the IRS and other agencies. And in fiscal year 21, through the end of fiscal year 23, we screened uh, 19.2 million accounts. And we prevented an estimated 310 million improper payments through that service. So that's just at that kind of central government-wide level. Um, and I think that that's just kind of scratching the surface. So you mentioned misaligned incentives. I'd, I'd kind of reframe it to say, how can we make it easy to do the right thing? So, you know, kind of going back to turnkey solutions and access to data, a verification is one of them, but also offering interfaces called application program interfaces that allow computers to interact with each other and kind of automate checks um, so we can not only provide access to the data, but also do it in a way that um, is seamless and automatic. So I think there's there's more to come and there's an opportunity to leverage technology to kind of overcome some of the obstacles we've had in the past. How can we pivot from compliance to prevention-focused strategies in advancing payment integrity? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, 
follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Renata Miskell, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Accounting Policy and Financial Transparency at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. There are some strategies for advancing payment integrity, and I'd like to talk about one, maybe get, dig a little deeper into one, if you will. And that's the concept of payment integrity as a service. Can you tell us more about that in practice? It maybe give a sense of what it, a flavor of what it is. But more importantly, Renata, how can digitization of payment integrity as, a, as and those activities associated with it be a force multiplier? Yeah, so this goes back to you know imagining a world where you can prevent fraud and proper payments in real time. What that requires is kind of moving away from our siloed processes. Maybe they're siloed because um, they're in different systems or there's different entities. Um, there's a lot of manual um, processing between those systems as well. Um, and really kind of shifting more to a digitized modular payment integrity set of capabilities that's integrated throughout the payment life cycle. And the way that I think about this is, it's uh, payment integrity is the other side of the coin to um, improving the customer experience. So how do we make it easier for recipients and individuals to apply and receive the federal funding that they're entitled to or, or that they're suited to, to receive? Anyway, so this kind of shift really requires a shift to more of a digital operating model in the government. It requires us to be able to make connections throughout the payment life cycle um, to kind of prevent, detect, analyze, and learn quickly and kind of feed information and anomalies and kind of risks through that pipeline so that we can prevent future bad actors from committing fraud. I, th- I think the other thing I want to highlight there is right now our do not pay portal within our Office of Payment Integrity provides information to federal programs about various entities or or individuals that should not receive a payment. So if the person is deceased or if the entity is debarred um, and, and other kind of information. And how can we do that in a way that is um, more real time and actionable? So how can we provide that information in a way that is easy for the program to triage, to prioritize, and to um, decide what to do with um, without overwhelming them. Renata, Treasury continues to modernize its do not pay platform, but how else can the department leverage emerging technologies and advanced analytics in its effort to focus on prevention, positioning Treasury as a central hub 
for reporting suspicious or fraudulent activity in the federal government payment lifecycle. Yeah, AI and machine learning are and are going to be crucial catalysts for transforming how we think about payment integrity. Um, of course, we need to stay within the guardrails and you know new uh, policies around how we use AI responsibly, and of course, existing privacy and security constraints. But I think the technology is ripe where we can do those things um, if we do them thoughtfully. So recently, we at Fiscal Service implemented processes to detect and prevent fraud in real time. We used uh, advanced analytics and machine learning to strengthen our controls and more rapidly identify and recover potentially fraudulent payments from financial institutions and notify the issuing agency quickly. And they were able to reissue payments to the right recipient quickly. Uh, I can't share a ton of specifics on it, but we've seen in the kind of recent months the power that machine learning and AI can have on ensuring payment integrity. So at the heart of promoting payment integrity is an agency's ability she pointed out earlier, you use data to learn and respond to new and changing requirements, emerging threats, and and, and hopefully opportunities to kind of transform how you do business. Uh, to that end, how important is it for agencies to embrace best practices such as data catalog and schema? And, and how can Treasury, this is really where I'm going with this, is how can Treasury promote connections between payment and award processes while also uh, building out the government-wide spending data model. Yeah, so this is um, a pet passion of mine and something a little nerdy and wonky, but it's it's really critical. So data management, I mean, it's, it's really important. Uh, without data management and sound data catalogs, which include information around data definitions, authoritative source, you know, formatting, validation, et cetera, uh, you really can't use data effectively. So it's really important, I think, to be able to manage our financial data really well and to catalog it so that it is well understood, both from a um, kind of person perspective, but also from a machine perspective, right? Like, can the machine understand what this data element is and how does it relate to others and, and how can it be used responsibly? So the, you mentioned the government-wide spending data model. So this was formerly the or the Data Act Information Model Schema. Yeah, and so, so that powers USAspending.gov. So if, um, if you at all take a look at USA Spending, really the only reason that website works well is because of this information model schema. Um, there is a set of definitions and data management that kind of helps the website function and kind of present the information in a way that is um, consistent and comparable across. And that really enables people to kind of understand the story of how federal dollars are spent. So the DAMES, or, or the government-wide spending data model, the new title, it makes these kind of key connections between government accounting, uh, budget, procurement, financial assistance. And, and I think another key connection that can be made is the connection to improper payments. So right now, the current improper payment legislation, PIA, requires agencies to report um, regularly. That reporting is currently done through paymentaccuracy.gov. But imagine a world where the public could see 
not only the amounts appropriated and obligated and spent, but also the rate at which that payment was, um, you know, done with integrity, right? So the payment accuracy rate. Are there any other, you know, best practices that should be embraced to advance payment integrity? I'm thinking, you know, strengthening partnerships through collaboration is a critical way of defending against current, you know, payment integrity threats. But from your perspective, what other best practices are there that we could you could share? Yeah, I, this is where I have to really give a shout out to the Government Accountability Office. Um, they have done, they put out a tremendous amount of tools and resources on really kind of how agencies and programs can get payments right in disaster situations and in regular situations. So I think there's a lot to be done in terms of um, helping to kind of activate that best pra- those best practices and helping new and existing programs to implement those best practices, but also partnerships. So one of my recent insights that I, I learned is, you know, you don't you don't seek out a new relationship in a disaster, right? You try to kind of anticipate the kind of key partnerships you might need. And then you try to build those relationships so that when a disaster strikes or when you need something, right, you can easily go to that neighbor or that colleague and say, hey, I need help. Um, so this is a place right now, post-pandemic, where we really are focused on strengthening partnerships. Um, and this really is partnerships across silos. So partnerships between um, the CFO and program offices, partnerships between um, federal agencies and states, partnerships between agencies and inspectors general and the oversight community. So I think there's there's a lot of kind of outreach and engagement that we can do right now to build that kind of community so we can tap into it uh, when the next emergency or disaster strikes. You know, in addition to collaboration and information sharing, how can government agencies and their leaders gain a better or deeper understanding of the challenges facing stakeholders in the federal government payment lifecycle? This is such a key insight you know, we can talk very broadly about these things, but it's really important to understand the perspective of the program manager or the financial manager, or the person for payment, the payment files, or the person at the state working to administer the uh, federal program. We really need to understand like what their challenges are and how to help them do the right thing and make it easy to do the right thing. So right now, Treasury's just recently started to do some targeted user research to get a better understanding of agency and federally funded state-administered program challenges in preventing fraud and improper payments. We hope to get a understanding of how we can best direct our resources towards the highest value and create a blueprint on places where we can um, kind of improve our integration, develop a new capability, or you know, gain a new data set that would be very helpful to our customers. I've also just recently launched a payment integrity working group. And this working group uh, seeks to bring people from across the federal government to identify opportunities to advance payment integrity. So this includes information sharing, like what are the recent kind of fraud trends, how is your program or how is your office um, successful in implementing a best practice or, you know, what what are the needs, right, that we can kind of rally together and advance better together uh, from a government-wide perspective. So very 
excited to uh, see that payment integrity working group take shape over the next few months. And um, so far, we've had a lot of interest and a lot of people looking to kind of meet each other, um, kind of meet uh, birds of a feather, if you will, across the federal space. Um, and then finally, I'd say we're also looking to understand what's working well in industry. So we've been um, kind of going out on a listening tour, really understanding, you know, what are financial institutions doing? Um, what kinds of new technologies or ways of using data exist that can be applied in the federal context to promote payment integrity? What does the future hold for advancing payment integrity efforts across the U.S. federal government? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. This is the Center of This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Leadership Fellow at the Center and host of its weekly interview program, the Business of Government Hour. The Center of This Week is our opportunity to inform and most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the Center as a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal levels. Our guest today is Dave Liebrich, Fiscal Assistant Secretary at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. So, Dave, I want to switch gears a bit and talk about uh, the disbursement of payments. What What are you guys doing to innovate and enhance? Are there any key initiatives in this area? And can you tell us what their progress is to date? So, um, we are now close to 98.5% of all Social Security benefit payments are now made electronically, which is really wonderful. Yeah. So we're And we're driving up government overall. Uh, around 96%. So we really keep pushing on making that forward. Some of the things that we've done, and now we, we have a, an innovative program um, called the Direct Express Program, which is around 4 million users. And these are largely people who don't have bank accounts. Mm-hmm. And so we've given them a, a, a debit card in which we load the benefits on the card every month. And that helps them, if they're not banked, that they can actually use the card either at ATM machines or over the counter. And that's been a, a really good innovation. Um, to try to hit a segment of the population. I mentioned about check conversion that we, we're trying to do. I mentioned that we're also looking at, um, in terms of, of fraud prevention and detection, uh, one of the things that we did during uh, the innovations that we used during the EIPs was we did bank account validation, verification. And really what that means is, is that before we sent the payment, we wanted to make sure that it actually was a legitimate bank account, that it was in your name and it was actually to you. And this has been something that's carried over now um, into our improper payment area. So saying, how do we reduce the number of improper payments out there? And we do we validate people. So um, in the payments area, again, really continue to push. We use debit cards um, in the EIPs, which was the first time we had done that, um, and uh, stood that program up in about a six-week period, which is really almost unprecedented, to make sure we could speed payment up. If we couldn't get have enough check uh, capacity, we could actually then use uh, debit cards, which we did effectively. There's obviously... Uh, in the broader, longer-term world, there's uh, there's innovation that's going on out now, out there about um, FedNow, which is real-time payments. That's uh, something the Federal Reserve is working on a system, and so we're actively working with the Federal Reserve when that process goes into place. The applicability we'll have for the federal government. 
The ACH system, which is the normal rails, has something called same-day ACH. And so we're working with sort of the ability to make same-day payments through the same-day ACH process and agencies. So, for example, let's say that the um, you have a large Social Security file, as an example, uh, and the file isn't complete. And you find out later that you had to add some people who uh, were entitled to a first-of-the-month payment. You now can come back in and say, it's the first-of-the-month, I can make a same-day payment so that they don't have to wait as, you know, so that they can actually meet that. So we're we're working on on those things as an innovation in the payments area. I would also say in the payments area, while it's not so much about payments, it's about reducing improper payments, we have a lot of work going on in that area. And I mentioned the account validation service that we're doing. Um, we're doing a little bit on, on machine learning with respect to doing fraud detection, and we have some opportunities that we can do a little bit more there. Um, we have um, the Do Not Pay database, which is about agencies can check against the database before they make a payment. And we're working with states who administer state, uh, federally funded state-administered programs so that they can access the database and come in and say, is that someone I should make a payment to? So there's um, a lot of work going on in the area. I think a lot of exciting work going on in the area. And when you ask me about kind of, you know, what are some of the opportunities for us in the coming years, I would say, you know, building out that payment integrity function Mm -hmm. is an area where I think that we have a lot of opportunity to do more because we're making 90% of the payments for the government. Right, and so we we are we are a central repository for data, and we we're a central pot, um, place where payments are actually running through. So we can really, I think, make a big difference in that area of of, of helping agencies ensure that they don't make improper payments, um, and that, you know the payment gets to the right person for the right amount on the right and, and the right at the right time. Now, longer term, um, which I think is probably not going to occur in my career, my professional career, there are discussions about things out there about central bank digital currency oh, and, yes. and, and the like. I don't think those are things, those are things which are, are important ideas to be considering. Um, I don't think as it relates to my day-to-day operations <laughs> that those are, that's going to be implemented anytime soon. Dave, what I'd like to do is, is take your experiences around the emergency responses that you were involved in. What I'm talking about is the recent pandemic, but also as you compare it to the Recovery Act of 2009, any lessons learned that helped you with the pandemic response? Yeah, and let me talk about it on a couple of levels, which is the magnitude yeah. was significantly larger this time around than it was in 2008. I think, in fact, in the 2008, there was around $700 billion were spent and well over 2.6, and then uh, growing was on the 2020 response, and there was an additional piece put on the, on the back end of that. You know, there were three major buckets. There was agency funding, there was some tax relief that was done, and then there was some additional um, loans that were put out there on the PPP program. Um, and, you know, those went to things like the airline industry to make sure that the airline industry stayed stable. Um, there was small business lending that went out on the PPP. There was a large bucket that had to do with state and local government money that was sent to the to states and the local governments. There was money sent to individuals on the economic impact payments. There was money sent to healthcare providers. And then there was economic um, stability, stabilization, which was the Federal Reserve intervening to actually help and assist in making sure markets continue to function well. And our initial effort was really to get the money out. Um, I mean, that really was, as I framed it earlier, was there was just a dire need to make sure that you didn't have a collapse of the economy. And I think that there was, I think by all measures, that was, was tremendously successful. Phase two is where a little bit where we got in later was much more about program. And so one thing that Treasury did this time that I think 
was very useful and did it in 2008 as well, was set up a separate office that was really dealing with the recovery program and was, was really trying to bring all that into, into one area. And that office of the recovery programs has now been established on a permanent basis. Um, the reason why it's been established on a permanent basis, I think there's a feeling that um, Treasury, for better or worse, um, always sort of ends up being at the front of administering um, these kinds of programs. And so one might argue, well, why was the Department of Treasury doing airline work? Why was it doing um, you know, the variety of things that we were doing? I think and part of it is, is because I think that there's a sense that we can stand things up quickly and that we can... And I think that, you know, we have now built a stronger infrastructure that means that if, if there's a next time um, we do have a standing infrastructure rather than having to stand something up and stand it down, um, now we will scale down, and which is what we did in 2008, and we will scale down as, as these programs start to, 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 come, to run off a bit. But having that infrastructure in place so that you can be responsive, I think, is, is, is something that we've learned from the 2008 and learned from the 2020 experience that, you know, that you need to, you need to do that. You know, I, I mentioned it was wonderful that we were able to bring people in quickly and to respond quickly on different things. At the same time, you have to administer the programs. Yeah. You have to make sure there's things like not improper payments, with the funds used appropriately, as you're doing your right accounting, all those kinds of things are really important. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery, by Yan Yan Ang, presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Renata Miskel, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Accounting Policy and Financial Transparency at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. Renata, across the federal government, the pandemic required agencies to become obviously more adaptive, nimble, and agile to effectively respond to the crisis. How have you, uh, in your area, uh, sort of leveraged and applied agile principles to transform how your portfolio operates and what you do at Treasury? And are there any success stories you'd like to share uh, that illustrate agile principles of management and practice? Sure. Uh, I'll go back to the pandemic. I'll, I'll highlight two examples. So the first is Treasury's efforts in dispersing the advanced child tax credit payments and the economic impact payments, which you mentioned earlier. The, the kind of legislation that enabled these payments came quickly and they required the funds to be pushed out as quickly as possible. And the, the dollar amounts really shattered historic volumes. So for um, advanced child tax credit and economic impact payments, um, we partnered with the IRS and really engaged in some agile problem solving. You know, how do we get the money out the door quickly, safely and efficiently? How can we leverage our kind of unique authorities as the central dispersing agency to, you know, infuse money directly into people's bank accounts um, without kind of going through the hurdles of, you know, printing checks and, and mailing them and the potential fraud associated with that? 
So all in all, our efforts with those two programs resulted in a 99.6% accuracy rate. We were able to avoid approximately 45 million check payments between these two programs. um, So that allowed for a safer, faster, and more accurate payment. The other area where we've seen agile um, government is the disaster reporting on usaspending.gov. So I didn't mention this earlier, but I sort of joke to my colleagues, um, USA Spending is my first baby, and then I had three um, actual human children. (laughs) Um, But I was, my my previous role, I was... um, one of the kind of key people um, implementing the Data Act and the refreshed usaspending.gov. And that program was established in using um, agile and user research principles from the get-go. And what I thought was amazing was how quickly that website was able to uh, present out the COVID-19 spending. A, it had um, kind of a process and a infrastructure in place to be able to receive new data. And um, they had proactively thought about how to categorize disaster spending in general. So there was already a structure in place and it was just a matter of, you know, receiving the data. And then though the site was able to kind of quickly um, shift to highlight that COVID-19 spending because that was the biggest kind of interest from the public. And they were also able to partner really uh, with the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee to uh, make the data available for their purposes. So, uh, you know, that's just one example where, like, contrasted to, like, the re- the Recovery Act, where it took, you know, years, you know, months, years to get information out. I think uh, USA Spending was able to get it out very, very quickly within months um, to, you know, present a clear picture to the public about what's happening on the ground. Now, my, my next question, you mentioned it earlier, and you, and you may have gotten into most of it, but uh, Renata, I was wondering, are there any other recent enhancements to the operation and use of USA spending.gov that you'd like to tell us about, or maybe even future uh, enhancements? Yeah, I mean, the again, back to the agile and iterative nature of that program, they're releasing new enhancements every two weeks. But the two I'd like to highlight are um, some enhancements they've made both for the newer users as well as the more experienced ones. So for newer users, USA Spending launched a new homepage that kind of reorganized the content and made the site easier to navigate and was a little bit friendlier, less intimidating for kind of the kind of casual user. They also launched several new features to help users understand the data, including an interactive tool called About the Data. And, and this is really complex stuff. I mean, you know, learning, trying to teach someone how government spending works is, is no easy task. So, so they really tried to make it easy. And then they finally, they also released several new YouTube videos to help people understand how to use the site and answer their common questions. And then for the more experienced kind of technical audience as, that's familiar with the kind of technical aspects of getting the data and using the data, we expanded our search functionality um, to make the data more easier to search and explore. So there's a number of um, additional visualizations that you can see once you kind of put in a unique search query. And then we also added a new column highlighting outlays, which is a big deal. Um, so, we, you know, the actual government payment that spend 
And then finally, we updated the site to include the new congressional districts. So the site, you can you can actually see spending um, by the new congressional districts while also being able to um, kind of make sure that the site is backwards compatible to the prior congressional districts. So again, very technical, no easy feat, but it, it, it was done. So are there any other, uh, Renata, any other key accomplishments you'd like to highlight? Um, and what does the future hold for your portfolio, your office? Um, I'd say one other area I have not shared yet is how our Office of Payment Integrity has been recently partnering with FEMA to facilitate the delivery of disaster support. So we all, uh, just the recent Hawaii wildfires, that was a terrible, terrible disaster. And we were able to work with FEMA with our kind of existing relationship to provide a variety of tools to support FEMA's rapid response. So we supported them um, with account verification service, as well as identity uh, and entity verification data to ensure that FEMA was able to provide quick and accurate disbursements of um, those disaster funds to Hawaii. And then, you know, just overall, um, I don't think I shared this yet, but I'm just so proud of how we're progressing. So in fiscal year 2022, we prevented approximately 160 million in improper payments. And we're seeing that number grow to 650 million in fiscal year 2023. And we believe that 1 billion isn't too far out of reach. Um, We're just really at the tip of the iceberg. And I'm just so proud of all the work that Fiscal Service and the Office of the Payment Integrity team in partnership with the agencies is doing to promote payment integrity. That's great. So, Renata, what advice would you give someone who is thinking uh, about a career in public service? It's a very meaningful calling. It's a way that you can, again, going back to that integrity, kind of be your whole person. Um, So I mentioned I have three kids and I want to make sure that I'm spending my time in the most meaningful and valuable way possible when I'm at work. And for me, it's really, you know, how can I, I I really care about a well-managed government. How can I kind of apply my experience and skills to push that forward as much as possible? When I was in uh, my master's in public administration program, we talked about the Athenian Oath, which essentially means, you know, how do you leave your city better than it was before? And so, you know, anyone coming into government, um, it can be challenging with the bureaucracy and all of the kind of various stakeholders. But at the end of the day, you're part of this big body of work that is working to, you know, kind of make a positive change and improve the common good. So anyway, so that's, that's the advice I'd give is, you know, as hard as it can be, it's also extraordinarily rewarding and um, it can lead to a very satisfying and fulfilling life. Uh, That's great. So Renata, I want to thank you for your time today, but more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you. I appreciate it, Michael. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Renata Miskell, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Accounting Policy and Financial Transparency at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at iTunes, Spotify, 
or on your favorite podcast app. And as always, at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.